Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. But I want to start off this morning by Romans 8, 31. I'm going to read through to 34. All right. And, and Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? He's talking about now that Jesus has done, now that we've had Good Friday, now that we've, we've looked at the finished work of the cross and what it has accomplished in our lives, what shall we say? What will our attitude be? What will our faith be? What will our stance be on the things that we face day to day? As we go through life, as we go through hardships, as we go through difficulty, as we go through suffering sometimes, as we experience different things in this world, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, and we know that He is because He gave His Son, who can be against us? Who can be against you this morning if God is for you? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things. You see, this is where we move from Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday. If God gave Jesus on Good Friday for all of us, why do we think that God would not, after Resurrection Sunday, keep giving towards us, keep being gracious, keep working on our behalf? If He did not withhold Jesus, why would He withhold any other good thing? Graciously. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who will judge your stance with God? Who will proclaim over you that you do not belong to God? Who can snatch you from the hand of God? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Sometimes we condemn ourselves. Sometimes we're condemned by others. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one that was raised. More than his death, he was raised to life again. So who shall condemn you? Who can speak condemnation over your life? When Jesus was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Do you know that right now, Jesus is present with the Father at the right hand of God, having all authority and dominion and power in His hands, and He prays for you. Even when you do not pray, Jesus is praying for you. He lives to make intercession. I'm hoping that as I share some of these truths, eternal, spiritual, biblical truths, that you begin to understand that you are more in this life than just a struggling, suffering, fumbling pilgrim. You're more than just somebody trying to make it through to the end of the week. You're more than just somebody trying to make it through to the end of the month. You're more than just somebody trying to do something of significance. You are filled with the resurrection power of Christ. No one can condemn you. God is the one who justifies and we walk by the power of Jesus within us and His prayers as He prays for us. There is more to your life going on than what you even realize. God is involved. Why? Because according to what Jesus has done for us, we have now been reunited with the Father. Amen? 
Amen. I'm going to pray for us for a minute, and I want to share a few thoughts from Romans 8 this morning. Father, we just thank you right now that we're not just talking about you, but we're talking to you. God, we're not just hearing about you, we're hearing from you. We thank you, God, that this morning you're speaking to every heart. This morning you're speaking to every soul. This morning that you are taking even those, those hardened hearts, those hearts of stone, and you are exchanging them for a heart of flesh, a heart that can know you, a heart that can beat, a heart that can feel, a heart that can hear your voice. We thank you, God, that all of our hearts are softened this morning to the revelation of what you did for us on the cross, to the voice of the Holy Spirit, Lord. Father, we pray that as Jesus was raised from the dead, that you will raise us also, that you have raised us and that you are sending us. Thank you, God, that this entire community pulses with the lifeblood of Jesus. And God, we are alive because you are alive. We're able to do because you have called us to do. We thank you, God, this morning for your word and its effect in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, Amen. Amen. Man, I feel like preaching this morning. I don't know if you've noticed, but like, I'm ready to go this morning. He's going to have to uh, rein me in a little bit. Um, but uh, but I, I wanted to ask this question this morning for anybody who has ever suffered this trauma, the trauma of trying to parallel park with an audience. Anybody ever try that? <laughs> parallel parking in an with an audience. I drop my boys off at school. I do the early morning school run every day. And so I've got three boys in the car and uh, it's normally, you know, quite an effort just to get them in the car and then to be heading over to the school. And we get to the school and where our school is, the school's obviously grown a lot over the decades. And so there's never enough parking. There's always a traffic jam. Uh, there's always very limited space. And everybody is kind of on top of each other while you're trying to park. And there is nothing more daunting than, and, and all that's available, by the way, is parallel parking. There is no other way to park except parallel parking. And so this has tested my parallel parking. I, you know, I drive a bigger car, so it's tougher than the little cars. And so when you see that spot open up and you kind of, you have to psych yourself up a little bit and you pull past and you put your hazards on and you let people know, I'm going to do this. <laughs> have you ever done that? Have you ever given yourself a pep talk as you drove past? And you're like, I studied this. I passed my license. I can do this. You're like, give yourself a little bit of motivation. Like, this is not so hard. Plenty of people do this. I've done this many times before. The person behind gives you space, and they're like, hey, kids, watch this guy. He thinks he can parallel park. Let's see if he can get it right before the bell rings. You know, all the kids sitting forward like, I can't see this guy's trying to parallel park. It's a daunting prospect when you're trying to do that and when you're trying to park. And uh, sometimes when you're about halfway in, it's amazing how our brains have the ability to do on-the-spot geometry, on-the-spot angle calculation. And you begin to realize halfway in, this is not going to work. <laughs> Have you ever been there? Like, man, I, I, can go, I could go, I could do this, but I'm going to do two things. I'm going to scratch my rims and I'm going to bump this car in front of me, right? And the traffic is packing up behind you. I mean, it's going all the way onto William Nickel at this point because you're going to get this angle right. And halfway in, you realize, I can't do this. Curse you, K53. You taught me nothing. I parked at a store this week and my wife and I were walking back to our car and a guy with a massive Hilux had parked so poorly that we could hardly even get through to get to our door. And I said, dude, you, you failed K53, man. They'd send you straight back. You'd have to come back next month because this is terrible. He didn't move his car. He just went into the store. But I feel like somebody needs to hear this today. 
Maybe this is a little bit prophetic. If you don't get it right the first time, you can repark. Like seriously, you can just try again. <laughs> that was a joke, by the way. That's not prophetic. Some people are like, he's getting serious. No, I just want to let you know that if you didn't get into the parking the first time, everybody else can wait. You can repark. It's okay. Nobody's going to shame you for reparking. But what's worse than failing to parallel park? Well, many, many, many different things. But to start with, failing twice at parallel parking. Right? Have you ever gone like, no, no, it's fine. I'll try again. And you pulled out. It's like, hey, okay, guys, everybody gets this wrong every now and again. Just give me another go. And halfway in again, you realize I'm still, I'm still not getting this angle right. Has anybody ever suffered this? Some people. It happens. I saw one mom try like three or four times. And I, was, I, I was, had a lot of time, so I wasn't rushed or anything. But I, I saw her try, try again, go out, try a third time. Eventually, she just drove off. It's like, mom, we have school. Not today, kids. <laughs> I tried. We're going home. But I want to draw a parallel here. See what I did there? Because many people have this subconscious idea that what Jesus did on the cross was give us a second chance. Have you ever heard God is the God of second chances? And I know what they mean when they say that, but it can also be a deceiving statement theologically. It could also drive us away from an understanding of the gospel. Because the idea that we often get is that we had done so many things wrong up until that point where Jesus said, okay, I'm, you know, I, I, I see the sin of the world and I'm going to die for your sin. And now, okay, everybody, you've been forgiven. Just don't do it again. Now that you've been forgiven, you've got a second chance. And people are often very grateful to receive that second chance. I've seen people in tears at the knowledge that Jesus has forgiven them, at the knowledge of knowing that they have, have been redeemed, of knowing that they have been forgiven. And they walk out of church on a Sunday morning going, that's it. I'm never going to do another thing wrong again. I'm forgiven. I'm, I'm, I'm saved. This is my fresh start. And all of those things are true. But what happens if you do mess up again? What happens if you didn't just fail once and then receive forgiveness, but you failed again? What happens if you keep failing? What happens if you keep messing up? What happens if there are certain things that you're struggling to get over? What does Jesus do then? Yes, he's the God of the second chance. But we have this idea that God is somehow like, okay, I messed up that parking one time and you helped me then, but if I get it wrong, if I get it wrong again, then God is going to turn around and say, okay, now you're on your own. You failed too many times. It's why the message of Resurrection Sunday is so important. It's why Easter is not just about the death of Jesus, not just about the forgiveness of sin, but also about the resurrection and the power of God that is now at work within us because of the resurrection. This idea that God did not just forgive us and say, okay, go try now to get it right this time. But instead, He fills us with His Holy Spirit. 
He empowers us with His grace and He walks with us every moment of every day after the resurrection. The only thing that gives our mortal bodies life post-resurrection is the resurrection, is the Holy Spirit. It never goes back to being you. It never goes back to now you must try harder. I once got into a lot of trouble. In fact, the most trouble I've ever gotten into for preaching a sermon. Yeah, I've had people, I often get people angry with me. You know, whenever somebody comes up to you after a service and they say, I just want to just talk to you quickly about your message. <laughs> it's normally trouble. They, they, they've got an issue with something. I've had that many, many times. But the one I got the most trouble for that caused an entire shift in my career and in my walk is when I preached the message that was so offensive that people I felt would have stoned me that day if they had some stones lying around, some loose rocks. And the message that I preached simply said that the gospel isn't that you can't and so Jesus does and then you can, then it's up to you to go and do it. It's you can't do it. You cannot actually, you don't actually have the ability to live for God to be righteous. But then Jesus came and He did it on our behalf. He made us righteous on the cross. And then post the cross, it doesn't go back to now you try again. Jesus does. You can't. Jesus did. What happens now? Jesus does. Paul says, the life that I live, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. That, that upset people. So much so that I had to change churches. It's an offensive message. Why? Because we all want to do it by ourselves, for ourselves. But the gospel declares that Jesus is the one that now, since we are raised with Him, we rely on His power and His presence and His ability and His grace to do all the things that God has called us to do. You know what that leaves us with? No excuse. I can't say, no, I, I just can't overcome this addiction. Rubbish. Do you not know the power of God that lives in you? I can't be a better husband. I can't be a better wife. I can't be a better parent. No, we just rest in the finished work of the cross, and we find the ability to do all of those things. We are now the people who run and do not grow weary. You will grow weary if you do it in your own strength, but if you run according to His grace, you just keep going because God is the one who sustains. Can I get an amen this morning? He sustains us. There's something more powerful in us. It's the resurrection. It's the life we got to get to live because Jesus got up. Romans 6, 10 to 11 says, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. He died, at one, he died for it once. He didn't have to come and die every time we sin again. He died once, and for, for how many of us? For a select few? For just some of us? No, for all. So that's a done deal. When Jesus died on the cross, he died once for all, but the life he lives he lives to God. So now that He's resurrected, His life exists to glorify the Father. Verse 11 says, So you must also consider yourselves. 
I love that term. I love the term consider yourself. It means to think about yourself. How do you think about yourself? When you look in the mirror, what do you think when you see in the mirror? Do you see somebody that's weak, somebody that's failing, somebody that's futile in his or her efforts? Or do you see somebody that's raised to life with Christ, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? These are things we need to stand on. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin means sin has no more power over you. It also means we're no longer living according to the law. The, the Bible is not a law book trying to tell you uh, that you should try harder to be better. It's not trying to tell you, hey, uh, look at, read these commandments, all 613 of them, and do your best. I remember a, a soccer player that refused, famous soccer player, refused to play in a club match because it was on a Sunday, and he said, for my religious uh, beliefs, I won't play in this match. And then his team, his national team that he was a part of, made it to the World Cup semifinals, and he played on a Sunday. And they said, but previously you said you weren't going to play on a Sunday because of your beliefs. And they said, yeah, yeah, but you know, that's more of a guideline. <laughs> it's more like you, and they even had a, a rabbi come on, and he was like, yeah, it's more like you try. It doesn't mean you're always going to get it right. And also, we need this player on Sunday, so please can he play. <laughs> you see, if you're going to live by the law, you're going to die by the law. If you're going to live by the law, you've got to keep all of it. You can't pick and choose the laws. You can't just go, okay, I'll try with the Ten Commandments and I'll ignore the rest. No, then go, go whole hog. And if you break one, according to James, you've broken them all. You're guilty of all. But what Jesus did on the cross is he fulfilled the law. So we're no longer living according to the law. We're living according to the spirit that is inside of us. The grace of God that has liberated us to fulfill the law without looking at the law. To live according to what's righteous without trying to be righteous. Because it's who we've become in Christ. For all of us, Jesus died as a full payment. For all those times you scratched your rim against the curb. All those times that you didn't quite get your parking right. All the times you missed the mark. And this means that you do not oscillate between being right with God and being separated from God. I remember having a conversation with a Bible school student when I was still in Bible school and, and, um, and doing college and stuff, and, and there was a drawing board there, and he took a circle, and he drew it on the circle, and he wrote God in the circle, and then he put a little dot there. And he said, you see, when I, when I repent and I make right with God, I'm in the circle. But if I sin, I move outside of the circle. And then when I repent, I move back into the circle. And this is why we always need to be repenting of our sins. And so I said to him, okay, so now tell me this. You're walking out into the street. You've just had a powerful prayer meeting. You love Jesus. You've put your faith in Him. You believe in Him. And you step out onto the street. And you look to the left and realize a bus is about to hit you. And you accidentally say a swear word as it hits you. Because if there was ever a time to say a swear word, that would be a good one. And as you're about to say it, it hit you now, you swore just before you died, now what? The blood of Jesus means nothing in that moment because you sinned just be quickly before you repented? No. We repent because we're saved, not to get saved. Initially, yes, to get saved. Until you come to that place of surrendering your life to Jesus and giving your life as an act of faith to Him, which I'll give you an opportunity today to do if you haven't done that yet. But before you get to that place where you actually 
you know, give your life to Jesus, if you, you need to repent. God, forgive me of my sin. I recognize I'm a sinner. I receive your grace and your forgiveness in Jesus' name. That's the act of faith that takes you across the line from death to life. But beyond that, yes, we repent, and yes, we're sorrowful over our sin, but not in order to get saved, because we've been saved. You know, even the word sin is an archery term, which means to miss the mark. It means I had a target, a destiny, a plan that God had for my life, a design with which He designed me, a purpose that He had for me, and I pulled the arrow back through my actions, and I missed it. I missed God's intention for my life. That's what the word, the original word sin, in the Greek, it's what it speaks about. Missing the mark. And so when we miss the mark, we, I feel the sorrow. When I, when I behave in ways that I know is not congruent, not, it, you know, doesn't match up or line up to who I am in Christ, I am broken over that. But I'm not separated over that. Too many people are not praying not spending time with God, not coming to church, not worshiping because they think they've done too many things wrong to stand in this room. It's because they don't know the message of the resurrection, the message of Resurrection Sunday. The death he died, he died once for all, full payment. I've heard many people say to me over the years, I feel far from God. I feel far from God. Christians that say, I just feel like God is far from me. Can I tell you that your feelings should not be the ones determining what's true? Our faith in the truth, our stance upon the truth is what is true, not what we feel. You've got to tell your feelings what your faith is all about. You've got to direct your own soul. David speaks to his own soul and says, Why are you so downcast within me, O soul? Hope in the Lord. Take up your faith. Take up that mantle. Take up your armor in Christ. Let your faith determine your feelings, not your feelings determine your faith. Because even though you feel far from God, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further than that. In the Old Testament, there was a veil that separated people from God. And that veil was like a few inches thick. It was a serious curtain. Like that's, if you've gone to a hotel and, you know, enjoyed sleeping late because of the blackout curtains, nothing compares to that veil, right? Proper blackout curtain. And the idea there is that on the other side of that curtain was the most holy place. It was the presence of God. It was the throne of God on the earth. His presence with people, with his nation of Israel at that time. And that curtain was there to protect the sinners, the people that had not had Jesus die for their sins, from the presence of God because there had to be a separation between God's righteous holiness and sinners. That's what caused the divide was sin. And so people weren't able to go into that presence of God. They weren't able to have confidence before God. But look at what happened on Good Friday when Jesus died. In Matthew 27, verse 50, it says, When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. So this is the moment where Jesus dies. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. Nobody could have torn that, that curtain. 
but God symbolically tears the division between God and man because Jesus had taken care of the sins of the world. There is now no longer anything to separate you. Your own sin doesn't separate you from God because he tore the veil. Like that song says, he tore the veil, he made a way when he said that it is done. That's what Jesus did. And he therefore allows us, the Bible now says that we have access through the new and the living way, through Jesus himself, into the presence of God. In fact, the reason why we called our church Anchor Church is because of Hebrews 6 that tells us that Jesus has now taken us into the presence of God and has anchored us there. That symbol of an anchor, if you've ever seen an anchor, try to pick it up and move it across or, or, or try to pick up an anchor, it is, it is heavy. And when it anchors a boat, that boat stays. And so in that way, we have been anchored in the presence of God. It doesn't matter how big the storm is. The anchor holds beyond the veil. You live in the presence of God. You cannot be removed from the presence of God. Does that make sense this morning? Oh, I feel far from God. You live in His presence. Even if you haven't spoken to Him, even if you haven't read your Bible, even if you haven't come to church in a while, you cannot be removed from His presence. So don't let the enemy lie to you and tell you this morning that you have been taken from God or that you have been separated from from God. The separation between you and God ended that day. I recently watched a video online of a father who thought that his young son, toddler son, had died. And this was a part of the war in Syria and thought, had been separated from his son and thought that his son had died. And they found his son, realized he was alive and brought them back. And, and I saw this dad receive a son back from the dead that he thought was dead. And how he cried and, and shouted out to the heavens because his son whom he thought was dead was alive. That's the heart of God towards us. That's how God pours over us. That's what happened that day as God received all of us back into his arms. And so the thought if you have ever thought that, okay, but if I mess up, God will just disown me, is an unbiblical, I would even go as far as saying demonic thought. God cannot disown you once he's received you back. Once he's received you back. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is what we have in Jesus. Paul wants the church to understand that our resurrection in Christ is not just a second chance, but a new life. What you have is not just a second chance, not just another go, not just another bite at the apple, but a new life. If anyone is in Christ, the old things have passed away and all things have become new. We now live in God's presence and as those who trust in Him and rest in Him, He is the one who transforms us, who shapes us, who changes us, who makes us new, who delivers us constantly. We are constantly being saved as the ones who have been saved, as it says in Hebrews. And so we just have to trust. 
Paul continues in Romans 8, verse 35 to 39. He continues this whole thought. Listen to this. In verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The context there is that being a Christian, uh, you know, at this time at, when this was written to the church in Rome, Christians were being fed to the lions. For his sake, there was an actual persecution of death. Christians were being put to death. But he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He goes on, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is an exhaustive list of things. That is a long list of things. The things that we think can separate us from Christ. And you might not think it now, sitting in church, it's easy to go, yes, yes, that's true, nothing will separate me. But the first thing, that long list of thing that, things that Paul lists there, the first thing he mentions is all kinds of hardship. How many of you know that when we face hardship, we go through a difficult time and we wonder, is, is God still around? Is He still working? Is He still present? Is He still working on my behalf? What this verse tells us is that no matter how difficult things may be right now, no matter what you may face in the future, he talks about tribulation, difficulty, distress. Some of you are experiencing anxiety and stress right now. Persecution, when others come against you, when people are working against you. Famine, which is finances. When you've got an empty bank account and too much month at the end of the month at the end of your bank account. When there's nakedness, in other words, that's symbolic of losing everything. Even if you've lost everything, when there's danger. I, I've, I've experienced this in my life when I wake up in the morning and I feel like I'm in danger, just purely because of the stress that my circumstances, it's like there's an imminent threat. Anybody ever feel that way? It's like I'm in trouble. Danger. Violence. Can any of that separate you from God's commitment to you. No one can change the fact that God loves us and holds us through it all. In fact, Paul goes as far as declaring, no, in all these things, we don't just conquer. We're more than conquerors. In other words, there is no people group on planet Earth that can endure and not only endure, but thrive in the midst of suffering like the Christians can. We have been put to death at different times in different places across the face of the planet. There are Christians in, on this very day being put to death in parts of the world. You cannot kill the church. You cannot destroy the spirit of a believer because though we are hard-pressed, we cannot be destroyed. Why? Because what is in us is greater than what is in this world. 
So when you go through hardship, take courage, Jesus said. I've overcome the world. And you're not just going to conquer. You're more than a conqueror. You're going to thrive. Something's going to blossom out of the hardship you're enduring right now. So hardship cannot separate you. Paul goes on and he talks about death. He says, nor death, nor life. In the context of the Roman church, the Christians were being fed to lions for their faith. And the Christians were wondering, what happens to me when I die? What happens to me when, when I'm swallowed up by a lion in the Colosseum? Can that separate me from God? Quite the opposite is true. The Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present from God. Once more, I'll tell you that there is no people group on the face of the earth that fears death less than we do. Death, where is your sting? Death to us is only the beginning of an eternity spent in the presence of God. In fact, it goes as far as when you have a real revelation of this, Paul actually says that, that though I'm present with you in the body, I long to be with Jesus. I wouldn't mind if I was being put to death at some point, because that means I get to be with him. But for your sake, because there's still a job to do, I'm going to stick around. We fulfill the plan and the race that God has for us on this earth, but we look forward to that day that is to come. Death, where is your sting? This is why there are stories of Christians being burnt as Roman candles in the streets of Rome with smiles on their faces, worshiping, as the flames tore up their flesh. Because this is just a tent and we will put it off and we will experience the glory of God. So is death going to separate you? Is anything in this life going to separate you? If death couldn't separate you, why do you think that something in this life can triumph over what Jesus did on the cross? He goes on, he says, nor angels, nor rulers. And a little bit on there, he says, nor powers. Now, Paul says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against uh, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenlies, against rulers and principalities, um, against the hosts of wickedness. It's talking about demonic forces. And sometimes if you have an understanding of the spiritual realm and it's the enemy of our souls in, in Satan and his cohorts, we sometimes wonder, what will happen if the devil gets a hold of me? Can he take me out? Sometimes we fear the, the enemy more than we fear God. We give more respect or reverence to the power of the enemy than we do to God. And that's because we don't know resurrection power. Let me tell you that the power of God is far more powerful, far more. It's not even comparable to, the, to, to what, you know, the, the power of Satan is not comparable to the power of God. I'll tell a quick story. Man, I'm enjoying this, but I'm watching the time. Don't worry. Um, I was once preaching at a church, big church north, north of Pretoria. Preached that night. Afterwards, it was, the pastor's, uh, it was the pastor's birthday that night. And so with the staff and the team, we had a little party on the side. Everybody's gone home. Church lights are off. And we're sitting, we're having some, some cake, um, you know, just in the side room, side hall, with kind of these glass doors looking into the big auditorium. It's about a, I think it's a five or a 7,000 seater auditorium. So then I had one of those moments that I mentioned earlier where one of the leaders comes, brings a man to me and says, this man just wants to speak to you quickly. I'm like halfway through a piece of cake. I'm like switched off. I'm like, no, you know, and I'm like, okay, let's, let's go chat. 
So we walk into the auditorium, dark auditorium. It's just the lights from the side hall kind of bleeding into the auditorium. And, and I turn a chair, and he sits down, and we sit down. And I'm like, okay, what's happening? And he says to me, you must stop lying to the people. But as he says that, he's, he starts doing this with his neck. Stop lying to the people. So, okay, what did I say tonight that was a lie? And he says, there is no God. Okay, no, wait, there is a God, but there is no love. And I realize as this man's kind of having an argument with himself, I'm like, I'll leave you two alone and, you know, <laughs> we can chat later. That he is under the oppression of a demonic spirit. So I says to him, on what basis, on what authority are you telling me that there is no love? And he begins to say a few things. And I say, okay, well, let me tell you on what authority I know that the love of God is real. And I simply start quoting scripture after scripture as the Holy Spirit brings them to my mind of the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as I say that, he starts pulling at his neck like this, scratching at his neck, saying that he is burning. The enemy cannot stand the power of the love of God, the message of the grace of God, the gospel. We're not ashamed of it because it is the power of God unto those who believe. And as he pulls at his neck like this, I say, I'm just gonna pray for you. And I get up and I lay my hands on him. I pray for him. As I pray for him, he just falls down on the ground and starts screaming, rolling around. And I'm praying for him. And I'm praying that God delivers the man from that spirit, just like we see in, in the scriptures. All of a sudden, he comes to, if I can call it that. He, he looks at me, and he says, stop it. <laughs> he goes, what are you doing? And I look at him, and I realize he had no idea where he was. He literally sat up and looked around at this dark, massive church. He's like, where am I? How did I get here? I'm like, you're in a church. You came in. He was a concierge at a hotel in the area that had finished his shift on a Sunday afternoon, and the last thing he remembers is driving home. The Holy Spirit literally arrested him, brought him into church. The leaders told me afterwards, he came in, didn't want to talk to anybody. He said he was just there to see a friend. He came and sat and then left, came back and left and came back and did that throughout the entire service the battle between God having a divine appointment with somebody's life and the enemy trying to drive him away from church. And even after the service, he had left. He came back. I need to talk to you. I need to confront this. That man gave his life to Jesus that day, ended up going for counseling and pastoral counseling with that church and ended up joining their team and serving in that church, helping to receive others. Don't tell me that the power of the enemy is greater than the power of our God. The Holy Spirit can literally arrest people in the streets and bring them into an encounter with the grace of God. So why would you think that any power or principality or spiritual host of wickedness would have authority over you? It cannot. Colossians 2.15 says, when Jesus died on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame triumphing over them in him. They have been disarmed. 
their teeth have been pulled. You do not need to fear any demonic force, not the devil himself, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. I want you to know the enemy is not going to have his way in your life. Do not believe the lie. Jesus has been exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and his seal is set on you. Nothing in time or space. He mentions time here saying, nor things present, nor things to come. The present future conundrum that we live in, that tension that we live in between what we have now and what will come in the future has the ability to invoke a sense of fear within us. Okay, the the present might be tolerable now, but what will I still suffer? What may go wrong in my life? Have you ever thought that way? Oh man, things are great now, but you never know what might happen. You never know. According to this scripture, we do not fear the present or the future. It'll never be so bad now or at any time in the future that you will be able to be separated from the love of God. Whatever happens, whatever happens, we win. You hear me today, church? Because of the resurrection, whatever happens, we win. Circumstances will never surprise God so that He must go back on His promise. The future is absolutely His. He knows it and He runs it and it won't separate us from Him. Nor height, nor depth. He deals with with space. Have you ever wondered what may be lurking in this life? It's like watching that movie 20,000 Leagues Below the Sea. And you know, if you've ever been out on the deep oceans, you're like, yeah, I can see this is deep. There may be something down there that nobody's discovered before that could come up and swallow the ship. But sometimes we feel that way about life. What is lurking below the depths? What may be in the heights that could somehow come against me and remove me from the hand of God? Psalm 139, 7 to 8, David writes, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, guess what? You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. There is no height or depth. Not the highest heaven nor the deepest hell can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He wraps it up by saying, no other created thing. Just like this message, Paul could have gone on forever. (laughs) He could have said, let me list another thing, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing. But let me just do a blanket statement here. There is nothing else. Everything that is not God, no thing, no person in all of the universe can separate us from the love of God. And that includes you. Do you know that you cannot separate yourself from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? John 10, 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. This doesn't mean that we can just give our lives to Jesus and then go on living the way that we want and then end up in heaven one day. That's not the heart. That's not the spirit of it. It's more like what Jeremiah spoke about in Jeremiah 32, 4, where he says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant, God said, everlasting. This is the new covenant in my blood. 
that I will, not, I will not turn away from doing good to them. doesn't matter what, God is not going to turn away from doing good to you. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. That fear is reverential fear. It's an understanding of who God is. It's not fear. I heard, uh, I think it was John Piper who said the difference, the gospel is the difference between being afraid of God and the fear of God. The grace of God is the difference between I'm afraid of God to God, I come before you with reverence. I know who you are and what you've done. So there may be stumblings in your life. There may be wanderings. But if you are his, then you will be brought back. His love pursues us. We are slaves of righteousness. We can't run away. God will bring us home every time. So nothing this morning, absolutely nothing can separate you from God's love. And the result is this massive sense of security that we know that when we leave these doors, our faith is not in our commitment to God, but in God's commitment to us. And because nothing will ever separate us, we can go and live the big, spirit-filled lives that God has called us to live. Amen? Amen. Amen. I want to end on this scripture, and then I'm going to pray. Uh, Mehi, band guys, you can come up. We're going to end here today. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 11. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, this, is a trust, this saying is trustworthy. In another place in Scripture, he says, this is a trustworthy statement worthy of full acceptance. For if we have died with Him, if we died with Jesus, like we did, Romans 6 said we were crucified with Christ, we will also live with Him. Far more than the things that we have been saved from, our past, our sin, we have been saved to a glorious future, the power of God that resides within us, the ability to make a difference, the effect of your life, the effect of our lives will ripple through the generations. You hear me this morning. There is an impact that God has for you to make because it is His power that lives in us. That is the resurrection of the dead. Amen? And there's a time to come when these mortal bodies will be exchanged in an instant for our glorified bodies and what we are on the outside will begin to match what we are on the inside already. And we can't wait for that day. Hasten the day, O oh God. We can't wait. A glorious future, every one of us. It's for you, by God's grace. Amen? Amen. Let's stand this morning. We can pray together.